On this podcast, we explore fantastical thinking, moral panics, urban legends, conspiracy theories, hoaxes, and crazes, examine the forces that shape our culture, and tell the stories that create the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. Hi, I'm Chelsea Weber-Smith, and welcome to Jackass, I mean American Hysteria. And MTV insists this is not a copycat incident. Big Brother magazine tells you how to commit suicide, drug use, and also explicit descriptions of sex. Steve burned his face so bad he ended up looking like Freddy Krueger. Daredevil hustler named Evil Knievel, who's one of the more grotesque spectacles in our history. Hi, I'm Johnny Knoxville. Welcome to Jackass. At the turn of the millennium, rowdy preteens and teenagers like me started doing things like pushing each other in shopping carts through the dim parking lots of chain grocery stores, slamming into curbs until we soared into sculpted hedges, our parents' handheld cameras capturing a creative stream of aggressively irritating stunts pranks, and pathetic attempts at kickflips. The tapes now, mercifully, melting away in some never-ending landfill. While skateboarding with abandon, I racked up a fractured wrist that left me poolless for the summer, my cast wrapped in a bread bag when I needed to take a shower. Then I got a somewhat serious hand injury after trying and failing to jump off a yellow cement pole and land on my skateboard. The truth was, I always had a general propensity for flinging myself into oblivion, jumping off untested cliffs and bridges into dark water while onlookers put their hands to their faces. Now, let me set the general tenor. At the time, our title show appeared in 2000, the year of our gnarly lord. An indignant pop-punk band named Blink-182 was suddenly topping the charts, soon to be followed by others like Sum 41 and Good Charlotte, a surprising challenge to the sugary boy bands of the late 90s, the reigning royal court of pop radio. Their songs included a surplus of dick jokes and a smirking ridicule of jocks, who also began to see their tenure at the top of the social hierarchy threatened by skinny, screaming wildcards. The undisputed jester kings of these transgressions were a group of skaters and loosely defined performers who came together to capture footage of their outrageous pranks, dangerously stupid stunts, and their gratuitous nudity that came complete with a million creative injuries to their groins. 
they reveled in producing and filming bodily fluids of every kind, and they won the day when they made the videographer puke. Here are some of Jackass's most well-known stunts. Anaconda ball pit, bungee wedgie, bungee porta potty, Lamborghini tooth pull, rocket skates, fireworks wake up, beehive limo, beehive tetherball, my personal favorite, golf course air horn, the vomlet, BMX joust, shopping cart joust, rent a car crash up derby, alligator tightrope, dick versus bottle rocket, and of course, snake versus dick puppet. Jackass ringmaster Johnny Knoxville has poked fun at the highbrow takes of academics who put too much meaning into what he considers the clearly meaningless antics of his motley crew. I've read a lot of great academic papers on this subject, and as always, I owe a great debt to the scholars who have studied this phenomenon. But I do get what he means when I read statements like, quote, In a way, the gooch itself is a form of abject. It is neither part of the genitals nor part of the anus, but rather an anatomical in-between. The white male and the gooch are depicted here as the victim of a displaced identity. They are naturally present, yet socially rejected. And my personal favorite, quote, in an effort to both lampoon and uphold their steadfastness in their heterosexuality, the anus is routinely jeopardized. I think it's true that the jackass guys weren't thinking about what they represented. In fact, they set out to be the complete opposite, meaningless. But the importance of looking at things like jackass isn't about the opinion, intentions, or expressions of this specific group of guys, but rather why American youth culture latched onto their work so emphatically. Why we made these cackling slackers the first major superstars of a whole new millennium. You really have got to uh, always have a super go-for-it attitude because if you don't want to go for it, you know, then you're not going to really be that radical. And if you're not radical, you're really not that hot. In the mid-1970s, a group of rowdy, unsupervised teenage skaters who hailed from a rundown Venice Beach neighborhood known as Dogtown spent their summer days surfing the dangerous waves around their local, dilapidated wooden piers. When the swells died down by midday, future legends like Stacy Peralta, Tony Alva, and Peggy Oki took to sidewalk surfing, what would become known as skateboarding, forming the ragtag competition crew known as the Zephyr Skate Team. 
A massive 1976 California drought would become a kind of divine intervention in the lives of these teens who scoped out and took over every unused pool they could find, draining the swampy puddles left at the bottom with a shop vac. Without realizing it, the new vert tricks they invented while drinking beer with their friends would revolutionize the art of skateboarding, which, since the 60s, had been pretty safe and parent-friendly, with two wheels on the ground at all times. But the radical kids of Dogtown started to get real air, kicking off and over the lip of the pool, suspended in a beautiful danger, both on and off their boards. They became worthy and controversial opponents in competitions. They became young celebrities, featured in magazines, and recognized at skate parks, even making guest appearances on popular TV shows. Zephyr Skate Team member Stacy Peralta would join forces with manufacturer George Powell to start the massively influential Powell Peralta Skateboard Company. Their team, called the Bones Brigade, would feature some of the most famous skateboarders of all time, including a young Tony Hawk, as well as the sensitive prodigy Rodney Mullen, who popularized the flat ground ollie and sparked what would come to be known as street skating. In 1984, with the new invention of the VHS tape and the home VCR, Stacy had the idea to produce a movie to showcase their varying styles, which they called the Bones Brigade Video Show. The team expected to sell a modest 300 of these tapes, but when all was said and done, they would actually sell 30 thousand this is a skateboard that's not a skateboard neighborhood daredevils now this is a skateboard their second video was titled future primitive and featured the skaters doing wacky tricks in public, falling down, jumping over each other's bodies, with groups of them lying down on their boards and riding through the street, running into pedestrians, with the classic shots of bystander reactions to their crazy antics. Their third video, The Search for Animal Chin, would become their most popular, complete with truly corny 80s acting and a cheesy 80s narrative arc about this group of guys on a quest to find the first ever skateboarder who had gone missing, a truly unfortunate Chinese caricature named Wonton Animal Chin. 
If we have to escape to the equator just to find this incredible skater, we'll keep on looking until we're done, and on the way we'll have some fun. If we don't find him, that's okay. We had a rad time anyway. I said, if we don't find him, that's okay. Cause we had a rad time anyway. But soon, an even more dangerous street style started to develop that included seemingly death-defying jumps and grinds down long handrails, the board now twisting and spinning under the feet of the skater. And along with it came a counterculture movement of aggressive transgression. Skaters started to view Powell Peralta and the Bones Brigade as preppy and outdated, with their embarrassing short shorts and dorky pads, boys who were too good-natured, too friendly, who lied shirtless in their hotel beds together, practicing their goofy tricks with their feet on the boards above them. Smith and one and sad and two and burial and three and walking arrows guys and breathe out and tighten those buttons and method air and one foot air and judo air and To many skaters in the scene, including former Bones Brigade member Steve Rocco, it was all too sanitized of the alcohol, drugs, and sex that had long run in the background of underground skate culture. And sometimes the whole thing seemed, well, straight up fucking gay. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week and you can pause anytime so just head to factormeals.com slash american hysteria 50 and use code american hysteria 50 to get 50 percent off your first box plus 20 percent off your next box that's code american hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash american hysteria 50 to get 50 percent off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. And now, back to the show. 
1992, after Steve Rocco had started a new, edgier skate company called World Industries, he tried to run an ad in the two major skateboard magazines, Transworld and Thrasher, and both denied the image because it showed a boy with a gun to his head. Feeling that indignant itch of censorship and feeling a timeless fuck you coming on, Rocco decided then and there to create his own deranged skate magazine that had no limits whatsoever. Very quickly, the content of the magazine became less about skating itself and more about the outrageous and offensive antics of those who created it. Writers Earl Parker, Dave Carney, editorial director Jeff Tremaine, and photographers Rick Kosick and future famous director Spike Jones. It would also include their friends, like future Jackass star and young skater Chris Pontius, who would become known as Party Boy, a man who dances on unsuspecting strangers while wearing just a thong and bow tie. Rocco would also hire another friend named Jason Weeman Acuna to manage subscriptions. Jason had been a sponsored skateboarder since he was 14, growing up with achondroplasia, a form of dwarfism. By issue five, he, along with another little person, made the cover with Jason grinding an orange curb dressed as an Oompa Loompa above the words, We Men, sparking his eternal nickname. Big Brother also designed other covers that were far more provocative, ones featuring a close-up of breasts, or a skater crucified and bleeding, or a skater dressed as the devil kick-flipping over a stack of burning Bibles. Alongside images of tricks, they ran stories about the Bong Olympics, about how to make a fake ID. They ran product reviews for penis pumps, complete with photos, and stories about looking for drugs with unhomed people. What was called the Kids Issue featured a boy on the cover jumping over the camera on his board with Big Brother written in block letters along the top and then the words Kids Issue in the bottom right in colorful bubble letters. But inside, there were articles about BDSM, bestiality, how to take drugs, and even how to commit suicide. And a kid is taught how to snort pixie sticks. In retrospect, the moral panic that Big Brother inspired does feel somewhat justified. Well, here's something your children may be reading that you should definitely know about. It's a shocking magazine. It tells you how to commit suicide. It tells you all about drug use and also explicit descriptions of sex. They seem hard to believe, but this magazine is really aimed at kids. We did talk to the art director of Big Brother magazine. Basically, it's just all in the name of humor. That's what we're doing, and I think it's very obvious. There is some very sexually explicit stuff in there. Yeah, there is. Pornographic. I mean, I think you'd have to label it that way. But do you think this negative press made them pause and take stock of what they were doing? 
Of course not. It just pushed these punks even further into their asshole abyss. And in 1996, they put out their first skate video, complete with footage ripped from the news stories about them, titled simply Shit. And we're off on the great East Coast tour. So come along oh. and enjoy. They started to focus on traveling to different cities to hang out at competitions and famous skate spots, partying with the locals and filming and writing about the wildest scenes they could find. A young clown college graduate with the Barnum and Bailey Circus, who was also a huge fan of Big Brother, heard they were coming through his town of Albuquerque, New Mexico. And since he lacked any noteworthy skating skills, he set out to present himself as comic relief, a guy with an unhinged, unpredictable personality, ready to take on the most brutal of dares. Stephen Glover, now known widely as Steve-O, tracked them down one warm evening and told them, in all his obsessive hyper-energy, that he had a trick they had to see. He then covered his brown curls in a shit ton of hairspray and asked skater Chris Markovich to blow a fireball off the top of his head. With a mouthful of rubbing alcohol, Chris lit a lighter and spit the liquid at Steve-O, accidentally hitting him squarely in the face, after which the flames engulfed his entire head, hand, and arm. Regardless of this horrific misstep, Steve-O still did a backflip while the flames literally started to melt his skin before pulling off his shirt and smothering the fire out. Later at the ER, he discovered that he had burned the skin off half of his face. But he got his wish. The story and photos would appear in the next issue of Big Brother magazine under the title Burning Boy Festival. Steve burned his face so bad he ended up looking like Freddy Krueger. It's horrible. That's the first time that the world escape community knew about Steve-O. He would also get a little montage in another of their videos called simply boob, in which he jumps off a bridge and chugs bong water, among other funny little flips and fireballs. On another tour through Philadelphia, the Big Brother crew met a talented 13-year-old skater from Westchester. The kid's name was Brandon Bam Margera, and along with his own big brother Jess, the late Ryan Dunn, and Brandon DiCamillo, they started making videos showcasing their own reckless groups, the skate tricks and brutal falls laced with campy skits and footage of malevolent pranks like 
throwing dummies from low overpasses onto the hoods of passing cars and running down the aisles of grocery stores with their chaotic arms flailing into the shelves, spilling products all over the floors. Inspired by Stevo's Big Brother footage, BAM also incorporated dangerously dim-witted stunts like shopping cart jousting and jumping off a high bridge with a beach umbrella. They called the compilation CKY, which stood for Camp Kill Yourself, and the skate company Land Speed Wheels would put it out on VHS, and thousands of copies would land in the hands of kids like me. The antics of CKY impressed actor PJ Clapp, who had recently joined the Big Brother crew as a writer. Going by the far cooler moniker Johnny Knoxville, he pitched his first stunt to the magazine, and editor Jeff Tremaine told him to film it. Knoxville's plan was to test out pepper spray, a taser, and a stun gun. The climax of this footage is what would skyrocket him to viral VHS fame as he slipped on the cheapest bulletproof vest that money could buy, ready to be shot with a 38 revolver. His friends, expressing rare concern, refused to shoot him, so he had to do it himself at point-blank range. The photos would run in Big Brother, and it would become the most memorable part of the second Big Brother video, charmingly called Number Two. Well, I'm Johnny Knoxville, United States of America, and I'll be doing a little article on self-defense equipment. Charge! As Big Brother and CKY melded together, Jeff Tremaine would say, quote, we had an exceptional arsenal of shitbags. And together, these agents of chaos with their cackling death wishes would turn out to be exactly what the suburban American youth counterculture was foaming for. Tremaine saw Johnny Knoxville as the potential frontman of a new show he was cooking up in his mind, with his ringmaster persona, his acting background, his skill at speaking directly to the camera, and the fact that he was just generally super hot. Along with director Spike Jones, they cut together the best of Big Brother and CKY and pitched a true tangle of madness to the execs at HBO. The notoriously highbrow network was like, ew, what the fuck? No, absolutely not. So the crew took it to their second choice, the classically classless MTV, where programs like The Tom Green Show and Beavis and Butthead had already paved the way for just the kind of mindless malarkey they promised to bring to the table. 
MTV greenlit the project, and Johnny Knoxville, Steve-O, Bam Margera, Jason Weeman Acuna, Chris Pontius, Ryan Dunn, Brandon DiCamillo, along with Preston Lacey, David England, and Danger Aaron, agreed to be paid a measly $200 per prank and $500 per dangerous stunt. And they were all more than happy to do it. And so, on October 1st, 2000, the very first episode of Jackass began when its star uttered his iconic opening line. Hi, I'm Johnny Knoxville. Welcome to Jackass. right before being shot out of a cannon. While the title of the show appeared across a waving American flag. And then America saw it. And it went just like this. A guy punched in the face by a muscled boxer. A guy pulling down a huge box onto himself in a toy store. A guy in a chicken suit strutting beside a roadway. A guy in a fat suit smashing his balls, falling onto a rail. A sleeping guy awakened by being hit in the head with a metal bucket. A guy in a tight leopard print suit jogging on the shoulder of a road. A guy in a shopping cart flipping over some bushes and onto the sidewalk. A guy dressed as a Halloween devil with a sign that says, keep God out of California. A guy in a thong running beside a road. A guy in a kayak paddling down a flight of cement stairs on rushing water. A guy on a bike with a doll in its baby seat flipping over a curb. An Oompa Loompa grinding a rail and falling on his face. Some girl puking. A guy in a bright pink Speedo. A van with a guy on top running into a giant pile of dirt so that he flies off of it, someone lifting weights at the gym with a fake boner, and then finally, a naked Knoxville washing himself off in a car wash after being flipped over in a porta potty By the next week, the show would bring in a record-breaking 2.4 million viewers, which would rise to 3.9 million at its peak, the most successful show on MTV for its target demographic, 12 to 34-year-olds. Interestingly, I was 12 when the show came out, and I am 34 now. Weird. For the first season, the show opened with the snarky warning. MTV insists that neither you or any of your dumb little buddies attempt this dangerous crap. But pretty soon after the series began, as I well know, that spirit started to spread, giving fresh new ideas to those young people already predisposed to the merriment of troublemaking. Over the course of the first two seasons, a handful of copycat incidents made the news. On January 26, 2001, 12-year-old Jason Lind was hospitalized for five weeks with third-degree burns after he and his friends allegedly tried to do a DIY version of Jackass's Human Barbecue. 
This was a Knoxville stunt, in which he sat naked and covered in raw steak, marinating in a kiddie pool. And then, once the steaks were attached all over his fire-retardant jumpsuit, he rolled around over a homemade barbecue pit until the steaks were cooked through for the whole crew to enjoy. Unfortunately, Jason completely skipped the part with the fireproof suit, instead wrapping his leg with a rag soaked in engine degreaser and lighting it on fire. He eventually told the media, quote, I don't blame myself, I kind of blame the show. Just a week later, 12-year-old Thomas Hitz was also injured while allegedly imitating the same barbecue stunt, though this incident seems to bear little resemblance to it. A friend of his poured flammable bug spray all over Thomas's hand and then lit the liquid on fire, causing it to burst into flames. When he tried to put the fire out with his shirt, that also burst into flames, leading him to sprint into a nearby pool, from which he emerged with third-degree burns. Three months later, a Minnesota incident was also blamed on Jackass, when a 19-year-old man was caught running through traffic, wearing a hospital gown and carrying a chainsaw. That same month, a group of friends filmed one of them trying to jump over a moving car, while allegedly trying to imitate a Jackass stunt. He survived with a broken leg and other minor injuries. And MTV insists this is not a copycat incident because it says Jackass has never aired a stunt like this. Whether these were indeed copycat incidents or simply a kind of timeless dumbass behavior conveniently blamed on an easy target, the media had its field day, warning of the newest pumped-up American menace until the feathers of parents were sufficiently ruffled. Democratic Senator Joe Lieberman saw a chance to continue his moral crusade in favor of television, video game, and internet censorship. He sent a letter to Viacom, the parent company of MTV, and urged them to take responsibility for the effect the content was having on the youth of America. In a news release, he commented, quote, it is irresponsible for MTV to air these kinds of stunts on a program clearly popular with young teens. There are some things that are so potentially dangerous and inciting, particularly to vulnerable children, that they should not be put on TV. MTV would kowtow to Lieberman and the Moral Guardians of America, pushing the airtime back to 10 p.m., changing the language of its disclaimer to sound a lot more serious, and instigating restrictions that the cast found beyond ridiculous. All of a sudden, they were not allowed to jump off anything higher than four feet. To even step off a sidewalk while filming, it had to be made clear in the shot that the street was blocked off from traffic. As the cast rolled through their second season and into their third, they would be delivered dozens of notes from production demanding that they cross more and more stunts and pranks off the list. 
For Johnny Knoxville, the last straw came when they had already filmed what they considered a perfect segment called the Vomlet, in which David England donned a chef's outfit, swallowed all the ingredients of an omelet, and then puked it all up into a skillet. Then he sat down and ate the whole thing, even offering Steve-O a bite, leading him to puke all over Dave's leg. But their masterpiece was denied by producers, who said it needed to be made clear that the vomit was cooked through and tested for a safe and sanitary temperature of 160 degrees. Throughout their second try at the bit, the one that eventually aired, Knoxville paced behind Dave wearing a hazmat suit. And though they tried to play it off as part of the bit, it really wasn't. It was in response to another producer complaint who cited the risk of airborne pathogens coming from the puke. That was it. Johnny Knoxville had had it. He wouldn't compromise his artistic integrity like this anymore. And he wouldn't let the fans think that the Jackass crew had gone soft. He was the first to quit the show after just three seasons, followed by the others, who all realized that to keep the true spirit of Jackass alive, they had to take it to the big screen, where an R rating allowed for everything from uncensored swearing to full frontal nudity, and all the unsanctioned stunts they could jam violently into the runtime. 2002's Jackass the Movie brought in $80 million, with two tickets going to a 12-year-old me and my friend who sucked up to a Gen Xer outside the movie theater until he begrudgingly bought us tickets as a pretend big brother. The massive success would continue with Jackass Number 2, borrowing its name from the Big Brother skate video, raking in $85 million, then followed by Jackass 3D that produced a whopping $171 million. Some of the guys would do spin-off shows like Viva La Bam, Wild Boys, Homewrecker, and Bad Grandpa, before returning for Jackass Forever in 2002 as middle-aged guys in their 40s and 50s, still willing to do pretty much anything for that coveted footage, with Knoxville sporting new light gray hair on his still super hot head and being rammed by an angry bull, flipping into the air and getting a pretty serious but ultimately okay head injury, adding to the estimated $25 million in medical bills the crew would rack up in total over the years. More after this. And now, back to the show. This is Evil Knievel and the Evil Knievel shock-absorbing stunt cycle. You can make him do wheelies, backstands, even mid-air somersaults. And for that big jump, here's Evil, up and over that four-foot ditch. Evil Knievel sold separately or with the Evil Knievel stunt cycle from Ideal. 
reflecting back on his childhood in the 1970s, Johnny Knoxville talks about his favorite toy, which was not a skateboard, but a crank-up motorcycle doll modeled after his ultimate hero, larger-than-life stuntman Evil Knievel. Between 1972 and 1977, it was the most popular toy on the market, with the Ideal Toy Company selling over $125 million worth of the dolls. Robert Craig Knievel grew up inspired by the Daredevil shows that he had seen as a kid, and he did his first ever wheelie, driving the large earth mover he was controlling on the construction site he worked at as a teenager, running it straight into the city's main power line and causing a massive blackout. After he got his hands on his first motorcycle, his recklessness was on full display as he burned through the city and up through the woods, hitting 150 miles an hour and doing long, loud wheelies beside the high school, a trick that most people had never seen. He started trying to ride his bike up to the top of a huge pile of rocks left over from the smelting process of the coal plant high up on a hill above the A&W Drive-In, the hip spot where local teenagers congregated every night, watching Robert, leading him to become a fixture, a ragged folk hero fighting the boredom of Butte, Montana. He was caught a few times cheating at cards, cracking safes, and stealing hubcaps. And when he was placed in jail beside an infamous criminal named William Knoffel, who had been given the nickname Awful Knoffel by police, an officer had a chuckle before declaring that now they also had an evil Knievel. In 1965, Evil left Butte and moved to Moses Lake, Washington, landing a new job selling Honda motorbikes. Almost immediately, he took one of the bikes and drove out to a deserted road with a logging chain, hoping to create huge sparks when he dragged it behind the speeding motorcycle. The faster he went, the more the sparks followed in a comet tail behind him. That is, until the chain caught the wheel of a parked car and yanked him violently backward off the bike, leaving him absolutely brutalized by the pavement. But not long after, Evil would be sipping wild turkey, about to jump his motorcycle 20 feet over two caged mountain lions and a huge wooden box containing a hundred rattlesnakes, thinking it might bring some publicity to the shop he worked at. As he sped up, hit the jump, and soared over the animals, legend has it that his back tire hit the edge of the snake box, sending the rattlers soaring into the crowd, many of whom turned and fled down the hill. Despite that little snafu, the performance was a success, and it inspired an idea in evil people would pay good money to see him almost die. 
So Evil Knievel assembled a riff-raffy group of stunt performers, not unlike the future Jackass crew, including Rod Pack, the first person to ever jump out of an airplane without a parachute and live, whose specialty was riding a parasail behind a speeding car. Jack Stroh, who jumped over speeding motorcycles as they came at him head-on. And Butch Wilhelm, a little person billed as Little Evil, who liked to smash through brick walls on his bike. When this thrill show, called Evil Knievel and his motorcycle daredevils, failed to take off, he went solo, and in a landmark moment of his career, decided on the fly to jump the fountain at Caesar's Palace in Las Vegas. It was New Year's Eve in 1967, and an enormous crowd flooded in to watch his jump. And what they saw was one of the most famous falls in human history, as he hit the landing ramp wrong and his body twisted and rolled and bounced across the sidewalk, and his helmeted head slammed down, giving him a serious concussion and a whole lot of bone fractures and breaks. The media played the footage of this fall again and again in slow motion. And suddenly, this anonymous maniac became a household name. As he became a massive celebrity over the next few years, he had his copycats, just like Jackass did. And many news articles of the time lambasted Evil Knievel as a dangerous influence for the already wayward youth of the 1970s. The Orlando Sentinel wrote in a 1974 article titled, You Can Kill Yourself Playing Evil Knievel, quote, Doctors reported recently that two boys, 8 and 12 years old, were seriously injured, and a number of others within that age range received minor injuries in bicycle stunts inspired by Mr. Knievel's widely publicized motorcycle and sky cycle exploits. The boys are building crude wooden ramps, pedaling their bicycles up the ramps, then trying to catapult over a line of trash cans. Dr. Asneys said, the kids are really caught up in the evil fervor. To keep the nation's attention, evil had to keep going bigger and bigger with his stunts. I still don't know exactly what he meant when he proposed this, but he asked the governor to approve his request to jump the literal Grand Canyon on his motorcycle. But shockingly, they said, absolutely not. What are you even talking about? So Evil found his alternative, the far smaller Snake River Canyon in Idaho. But how would a man cross this high, wide canyon on just a motorcycle? Well, he would mount it inside a steam-powered rocket called the Sky Cycle X-2 that would blast him over the water below and safely to the other side. This Sunday, a daredevil hustler named Evil Knievel, who's made a national reputation jumping motorcycles over lines and cars and trucks, will try to cross a 1,700-foot canyon in Idaho 
riding a rocket. So far, thousands of people have paid $25 each to be on hand when he tries it. If he makes it, he'll be many times a millionaire. If he doesn't, he'll be dead. And either way, what's happening at the Snake River Canyon this week is one of the more grotesque spectacles in our history. The year was 1974, and a crowd of more than 33,000 people gathered in what was referred to as the Evil Twin of Woodstock, an event full of nudity, public sex, violence, and drugs, far more like Woodstock 99 than Woodstock 69. At one point, the drunk attendees descended on the musical guests, the Butte High School Marching Band, stuffing a tuba full of rocks, beer bottles, popcorn, peanuts, and a bra. When the event ran out of beer, dozens of people pushed over the beer trucks and then knocked over all the outhouses and lit them on fire. When the countdown to the jump finally started, a hush came over the crowd, and the rocket shot halfway across the canyon before something went wrong and the parachute deployed, sending the capsule into a nosedive straight into the water below. And yet, somehow, evil survived without any noteworthy injuries and would continue to break his own records over and over again, jumping more and more extreme distances over more and more obstacles, racking up so many injuries that it landed him in the Guinness Book of World Records. Evil Knievel made it his solemn duty never to go back on his word, which meant that even when he knew it was mathematically impossible for him to make a jump, he would rather risk death than appear publicly weak. And for better or worse, that's what made him one of the biggest stars of the decade. And that is also what made the crew of Jackass major stars a quarter century later. Guys also willing to do pretty much anything in order to prove that they could. Now let's return to those academic ideas that Johnny Knoxville has, at times, rightfully poked fun at. But we'll be skirting the more Freudian interpretations that have to do with the constant torturing of the phallus and the subversive celebration of the anus. But you can keep that all in the back of your mind throughout this, if you want. To understand jackass, we must generalize irresponsibly and probably offensively about the psychology of an entire generation's counterculture, those born from about 1965 to 1981. Please don't get mad at me. Generation X has also been referred to as the lost generation, the forgotten generation, the invisible generation, the MTV generation, and the latchkey generation. 
This refers to kids who cared for themselves after school, having little supervision because parents were more likely to be divorced and more likely to both be working outside the home than ever before. And when there is little supervision, kids can get creative with their time, jumping dirt bikes off ramps over garbage cans, skating their way toward broken bones, blowing stuff up with fireworks, jumping off bridges, and just joyfully punching their friends in the head. The main political battle of the straight white male counterculture of the time was against Reagan and Bush Sr. and their conservative Christian administrations with their love of censorship. This activism, this revolt, came in the form of provocateurs who played satanic heavy metal and reveled in their displays of public perversion, where activism became more about sparking outrage in and then making fun of the opponent than some kind of sincere grassroots fight for political liberation. The extreme materialism and the unstable economy of the 1980s led many Gen X teens to develop an anti-capitalist, sardonic pessimism, a nihilism, a viral depression, a trademark slacker angst that through monetization by MTV became the counterculture cool. At the time, there was a kind of lapse in major national generation-defining events giving way to a lack of meaning. Because as Gen X folk hero Tyler Durden said in Fight Club, quote, we're the middle children of history, man. No purpose or place. We have no great war, no great depression. Our war is a spiritual war and our great depression is our lives. Back in 1974, at the same time that Evil Knievel was shooting himself across a canyon in a haphazard rocket and his fans were pushing over beer trucks and burning porta potties on college campuses across the country, young men were caught up in a massive craze, streaking naked and drunk through their colleges and towns and causing property damage along the way. The reckless teenagers of Dogtown were first soaring over the lips of pools, suspended in meaningless moments of beautiful danger. This was all happening as white American men were losing their sense of meaning, a lost war in Vietnam, a corrupt president resigning, and most importantly, the rise of second wave feminism. According to sociologists, the term white male backlash explains the rowdy recklessness of both decades, as people of color, women, and queer people were loudly and boldly making some progress toward equality, threatening to dethrone the long, singular reign of straight white men. 
The Jackass crew was made up only of this demographic, with many of their stunts, including painful experiences suffered by oppressed groups, and certainly not by choice. Being tased, pepper sprayed, shot with fire hoses, military-grade tactical pellets and guns, attacked by police dogs, tortured by electric shocks, and sexually assaulted. Another unconscious drive that sociologists have mentioned in their papers on jackass is called reflexive sadomasochism, the process by which a man tries to regain a sense of power he feels is slipping away, positioning himself as both a victim and a hero, first through hurting himself by choosing risk and danger, and then by surviving that challenge, emerging a tough hero who does what it takes to prove his masculinity, no matter what form that masculinity takes. In the 90s, when Big Brother and CKY came together to form what would become Jackass, third wave feminism brought us the riot girl bands straight out of the Pacific Northwest, as well as the commercial success of Spice Girly and Girl Power, a time when teen girl movies ruled the box office and Buffy was kicking the shit out of hyper-masculine vampires who pulled themselves up from their graves. A wave of negative press for men and a new liberal pressure toward political correctness was also threatening their good time, their uncensored time. And this combination formed a taste for media that made fun of it all, all at once. A taste for all that could be dumb and dirty and dangerous. Something vulgar just for the boys. No girls allowed. Unless they could hang. Then maybe. I could hang, and it was with these rowdy skaters that I found an easy place to fit in, the true secret teen boy I was in my reckless heart of hearts, fireworks in my pockets, and blood blooming on the knees of my jeans. In seventh grade, when I was called a skater dyke by my career bully, Mark T, who, by the way, was not a skater. He knew nothing of beautiful danger. He was just a typical jock without a heart of gold, popular for his confident cruelty. Within the devilish, devil-may-care masculinity of the 90s, it was incredibly common to make fun of certain people or things by calling them gay, and to call someone a faggot if they were appearing weak or just being annoying. And any show of affection between guys needed a no-homo caveat at the end. Gen X grew up defining themselves against an even more toxic, dangerous, extreme homophobia in politics and religion. But when it came to jackass, there were shirtless guys jumping all over each other in glee, showing affection, appreciation, and even care in ways that were crude but existed nonetheless. And of course, 
Of course, much of Jackass was jovially homophobic, turning gayness into yet another joke, prank, or even stunt. But at the same time, we can look at a 2010 Vanity Fair interview with Steve-O in which he told the journalist, quote, We always thought it was funny to force a heterosexual MTV generation to deal with all our thongs and homoerotic humor. In many ways, all our gay humor has been a humanitarian attack against homophobia. We've been trying to rid the world of homophobia for years, and I think gay people really dig it, too. It's true. I read just as many queer celebrations of jackass as I did academic critiques. After all, landmark gay director John Waters was a huge fan of the show and conducted a stunt in Jackass Number 2, and gay icon Rip Taylor ended the films with his flamboyant little celebrations. Steve-O continued, quote, Jackass is wholesome in a good spirit. Big Brother was almost kind of evil. As we grew up, as we found our way, we became guys who wanted to do the right thing. But even Big Brother, that loathsome mess of all the things that we've come to understand as deeply problematic, who certainly expressed some very offensive homophobia, did put the very first openly gay skater on the cover of their magazine, a guy named Jarrett Berry, who chose to wear assless chaps and a cowboy hat as he grinded a long rail over a flight of cement stairs. They called it the gay issue. Even years later, Big skate sponsors refused to allow gay skaters to come out and sometimes even dropped them if they did. Big Brother didn't give a fuck, and in this case, it was for the best. Yes, these underlying sociological concepts of white male backlash and reflexive sadomasochism may have been powering their work unconsciously. But under the problematic sludge of Gen X humor, of the certain pranks I wish never happened, it had a heart. It somehow gave meaning to the parts of meaninglessness that can buoy our souls or sink them. Now that I have grown brittle and old, the thought of skateboarding only reminds me that I have a body I better not throw into oblivion anymore. But you better believe I still watch skate videos every day. You better believe I have my little desk tech deck where I grind the bindings of the books I read for this show. I did enjoy revisiting the meaninglessness of jackass that was passed down to meaning-soaked millennials like me by our figurative big brothers of Generation X that was passed to them by 70s folk heroes like Evil Knievel and the scrubby revolutionaries of Dogtown. 
In a time where now every single thing pulses with a painful and complicated meaning from which we can never seem to escape, maybe we can remember the power of not taking ourselves so seriously that we lose our most ridiculous forms of joy. Maybe we can still find pockets of beautiful danger to remind us that we too can make it out alive. This was American Hysteria. If you want to get more of our show, you can head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria. You'll get ad-free early episodes, and you'll get access to Hysteria Home Companion, a talk show that I do with our producer, Miranda, all about the stories that were left out of the episodes. That's patreon.com slash American Hysteria. Another great way to help out our show, and it only takes like one second, you could even do it right now, is leave us a five-star review on the app of your choice. It really helps us out. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Jackass Chelsea Weber-Smith. Has sound design by Clear Camo Studios. Our research assistant is Riley Swedelius-Smith. And our producer and editor is Miranda Zickler. Thanks, as always, for listening. And remember that American Hysteria is performed by professionals. And we insist that none of you try any of the things you've heard today at home, unless it's the gay stuff. Happy Pride, and have a great week. Week.